Cool. Welcome back, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know why I'm saying well. <laughs> um, okay, so podcast episode six. Um, and today we're tackling the book, How to Think, A Guide for the Perplexed is the subtitle okay. that we have. I think there's a few subtitles, but that's the one that we have. Yeah. And it's a book by Alan Jacobs. Um, should I give us an introduction and then yeah. take it from there? Yes, you can. Cool. Okay, so... How to Think by Alan Jacobs is a book in which Alan thinks about thinking. What is thinking? How do we do it well? Uh, where does it go wrong? So the book looks at how we classify both people and ideas and how these classifications shape how we think. It looks at the words and the metaphors that we use and how they too shape the way that we think. It looks at the limitations of our thinkings and the hopes we have for improving our ability to think, hard as that might be. Um, and then finally, it looks at the pleasures and dangers of thinking. So yeah, how to think. Mm. I think it's it was a challenging read, I think. I agree with you. I think I was left more perplexed after reading the book <laughs> so yeah uh, Paul need to read it again <laughs> yeah I feel similar um, but I think the nice thing is even though there was parts of it that were difficult to understand the core concepts of things like and, and we'll probably touch on them as we go through the conversation but the core concepts of things like um the repugnant cultural other, yeah, yeah. so the person that is, you don't view as sort of almost human. You just yeah. view them as this other. Yeah. Um, that that is quite a clear concept that he draws through the book yeah. and helps to us to reflect on and how having that perception of others shapes the way that we think. think yeah. And then um, the ideas of the in group and the out group or the yeah. inner ring, yeah. and then the idea of I think what he calls um, membership. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's the idea of there's the inner ring, which is um, this idea of you and the people that have the same ways of thinking as you and that, and that can be a dangerous thing. Yeah. And then there's the idea of membership, which you could picture almost like a family where it doesn't really matter that you have different ideas and things like that. You still considered a true member and you're not gonna because you think differently you're not gonna get kicked out of the group um and so those kind of ideas and then one that i think you said you like quite a bit which is the idea of the way that uh, words metaphors and myths um, in essence mm, mm. and how they shape the ways that we think with without us thinking about yeah. it um yeah, so I think those kind of ideas pull through quite nicely, um, despite the fact that um, I think there was a lot of little pieces that tied together that was um, not as easy to follow. But I think it's also just we're probably not used to this kind of kind of book. Mm. So, Alan, I don't think you did a bad job. <laughs> we, we just need to reread. Um, but yeah, cool. <laughs> Should we go through um, the introduction? Yeah. Um, okay. So, I think the idea. Let's go. Let's. I'm going to read the the 
the title and then the the subtitle yeah. and then we can chat through it and and just touch on some points and and see how it goes cool okay so the introduction so by the way on each of these chapters um alan has a very short little summary um or kind of like a blurb uh, that kind of gives the essence of that chapter yeah so this one is while we're worse at thinking than we think. think. So I don't know if you want to um, chat through that yeah, we general can. idea. We can, and then, yeah, yeah, like I said, you take it from there, then I follow. Okay, through, yeah. cool. Okay, so, yeah, w- when it comes to just thinking in general, um, there's a bunch of different ways that it goes wrong. And so on page 12, he, he lists out some of these ways. So he says, yeah, um, indefinitely, there's varied paths that we can take towards seemingly inevitable, the inevitable dead end of getting it wrong. And these paths to um, various areas have names. Some of these names are anchoring, availability cascades, confirmation bias, the Dunning-Kruger effect, the endowment effect, framing effect, group attribution errors, halo effects, in-groups, out-groups, um, and a bunch of other things. Yeah. And so he... He mentions all of these and he's like, what hope do we have? Because there's just all of these different ideas and ways of making mistakes. But here we are yeah. trying to think, how do we go about thinking? Um, and then he goes on to give the example of, because he, he sort of takes a step back and he's like, what is thinking actually? And then he gives that example of the car. Yeah. Um, and I think the great part about this example is that it's just purely about thinking. Like, yeah. it's not a complicated philosophical what is thinking. It's just like, here's a plain, simple example. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he talks about the buying of the car. And then he talks about how you may be going to the shop. So, I'm just going to very loosely paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about how you go into the shop and you or you sort of do some research online and you look at like okay this car is i like this one and not that one and for this reason and that reason and maybe we should get the gps maybe not not. okay what should we do um and then sort of go back and forth and then you maybe look at a car or two and test them out and eventually you come to a decision and maybe you consult some people maybe you don't and then you you end up buying the car eventually and then you get home and you say, oh, you know, maybe was this the right decision? And then eventually slowly you sort of settle into that decision. And that is thinking. So he, he says here um, that this is what thinking is. It's not the decision itself, but what goes into the decision, the consideration, the assessment. Ooh. It's the testing of your own responses and weighing the available evidence It's grasping as best as we can with all the available and relevant senses what is. And it's also speculating and carefully and responsibly as you can, or as carefully and responsibly as you can, thinking about what might be. And it's knowing when not to go it alone and whom you should ask for help. The uncertainties that necessarily um, accompany predicting the future not only do you, uh, that sort of goes on a tangent, Mm-mm. but um, then he goes and says here at the, at the end of it um, that thinking 
will always be an art rather than a science. Which, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you remember the rationale, the state of rationalia or something mm-hmm. like that. So there's the idea that um, Neil deGrasse Tyson puts forth of. I think he just put it as a tweet, so it's not like something yeah. that I think he's... Although I wouldn't be surprised if it's something he's very interested in pursuing. But he chucks out this idea of the city of rationalia mm. or some place of rationalia. And all of its decisions are purely governed by the weight of evidence. Oh, okay. And... Yeah. Don't so account for feelings and... Yes. Yeah, okay. And so... And what Alan sort of teases out is that we think that that's a rational thing and we think that that's a good thing, especially in the modern world yeah. with science and all of those kind of things. But importantly, in reality, we don't always have all of the details. In fact, a lot of the time when it comes to policy and those kind of things, we don't have... um what's it, um, double-blind studies and things like that. Um, And we don't have that kind of information Mm. to be able to make those decisions. Mm. And so his sort of conclusion and, I guess, (laughs) preclusion is that um, as strange as it might seem, thinking is an art. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah, no, I think just going back to you, the car, buying of a car um, story that it brings in, you know, it's, like I said, like you said, it's, you can base your decision, or you can think you're basing your decision based on all this research that um, you've done, but you might end up going into the shop and, like, seeing a car that's, bright colored and doesn't tick all the box but there's just something that makes you gravitate towards it and then mm-hmm. you're like okay that's the one and no need to get home and you're like oh but it doesn't have this and that and it mm-hmm. might be what in this case the wife wanted but you were just like you know, I felt like I wanted this kind yeah. of moment you know so we might do all the, the different research but when it actually comes down to it like you're saying like all sciences kind of goes out of the window and you just gravitate into the moment and you make that decision. And again, that's what ties in to say that thinking is not, it's more of an art form than anything else. Mm. It's more, it's more open-ended than we ought to think. Um, Yeah. 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 I think it's a good point because sometimes, um, so he he makes late in the book, he talks about, um, I think it's John Stuart Mill or someone mm-hmm. like that, that um, has he, he he's brought up as a like super intellectual person oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. and things like that, and he ends up. Um, he, I mean, he's a really he was a really smart person. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of interesting things, which I don't really know too much about. <laughs> so I haven't looked into that mm-hmm. much, but he does these amazing things and. Um, but he comes to this conclusion that it's not just about being intellectual and being th- and thinking through things, but it's also about almost what I think Alan calls an orientation of the will. And so you, it's it's not 
just about taking those those facts in mm. and things like that. But one of the key things to thinking well is actually to try and almost train ourselves to have our natural feelings and instincts be good and healthy mm. ones. Because if we're able to do that, then we're able to think well. Mm. Um, or at least that's a, a core part mm. of it. Yeah, um, I think uh, with that idea, I think later on he also mentions that lady that um, with no fear. Um, I don't know if you remember that section mm. that um, the ability to have certain emotions actually help us navigate certain situations. Oh, uh, yeah. In her case, like... And I mean, it. he said it might be a kind of judgmental thing, but when you, let's say, outdoors and you see someone dressed scruffy and, you know, you need to have that discerning ability to say that person might attack me and whatnot. Mm. But if you have no fear, you, you can go next to that person, you know, and just yeah. be like, oh, okay, it's just another human being. But um, different things in society have kind of given us these biases. Yeah. Some that are not always great, but are able to keep us out of danger because just because you look at someone and you're stricken by fear, you know, okay, let me stay away from them. Yeah. And if it later turns out that they hurt someone, you'll be like, oh, my instinct was right. But if you don't have that ability, and again, like you're saying, if you don't always focus on the logical process or thing and disassociate from certain emotions, then, you know, there's a danger in that. Mm. You, know, you It might work well in certain aspects of life, let's say maybe your workplace, uh, in when it comes to solving problems. But in certain aspects of life, you need that element of, you know... Instinct. Uh, yeah, instinct to mm. kind of help you through. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really um, helpful point because you, if we we often think of in in the world of how to think and intellectualism, we often mm. think of just being purely logical mm. and rational, which is helpful yeah. and it's good. And then what we do is we say, therefore, the the emotional side of things. And those quick snap judgments are bad. Mm. And as you kind of pointed out, they're not always bad. They actually can be helpful mm. in the case of the stranger walking past um, and your fear instinct kicks mm. in. Um, that can be a good thing. It can, it can save your life mm. because you're not taking it sort of lightly mm. that there's this person who's dressed a bit scruffy mm. and they there's a reasonable chance that they might attack you. Um, but then at the same time, it can cause us to be racist or those kinds of things, which obviously isn't good. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting how how he sort of helps us view those different pieces because he's it's not just purely a science. It's part, it's a sort of mix of both. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so in the introduction as well, he talks about the book Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow um, by Daniel Kahneman. And there's the two systems of thinking. So the the 
system one, I think, is the thinking fast, so it's intuitive thinking. And system two is thinking slow, um, which is the conscious thinking. And he says that this book focuses on the conscious thinking, but and that's like his primary focus, because I think that's the one where it's easier to... Um, for us to jump in and stop ourselves from acting in certain ways. Um, but having said that, I th even though he says that the book is about conscious thinking, he, he does touch on the subconscious mm. thinking um, or the intuitive thinking a, a fair bit as well, because it's a, it's a helpful thing. Um, yeah. Then um, on page 17, he touches on um, this idea of people avoiding thinking. So he says, yeah, I'm going to argue that we go astray when we think our primary task is overcoming bias. So this touches on what you were saying. So I'm going to, he says, I'm going to argue that we go astray when we think of our primary task as overcoming bias. For me, the fundamental problem that we have may best be described as an orientation of the will. We suffer from a settled determination to avoid thinking. Relatively few people want to think. Because it's, yeah, it's easier not to think. Um, then he, he, he goes on to give, I don't know if you remember that story about the base camp founder. Um, and he, so I'll read it, or try and read it uh, quickly. So... It's the core idea of the story is that basically wait for five minutes before responding. Oh, so, yeah. okay, I think I remember that. Uh, I think I was laughing a bit when I was reading that part. Mm. I once had a friend um, that after a few drinks, um, he would just speak out of tone, like you know. <laughs> and there used to be a time when I would like tell him like count to 10 before, uh, you say, okay. before you say something you know yeah like, you know in that moment you might realize like okay maybe i don't need to say this but just mm -hmm. count first before you yeah. know if you still feel the need to say what you need to say then go ahead but if you realize <laughs> otherwise then yes yeah you know, so yeah well it's very <laughs> very related yeah um yeah, so Jason Fried, the creator and popular of the popular project management software Basecamp, tells a story about um, attending a conference and listening to a talk. He didn't like the talk and he didn't agree with the speaker's point of view. As the talk went on, he grew more agitated. When it was over, he rushed up to the speaker to express his disagreement. The speaker listened and said, give it five minutes. Fried was taken aback, but then realized the point and the point's value. After the first few moments of the speaker's lecture, Fried had effectively stopped listening. He had heard something he didn't agree with and immediately entered refutation mode. So that's a, a nice term that, that he uses. Entered refutation mode. And in refutation mode, there's no listening. Moreover, when there's no listening, there's no thinking. To enter refutation mode is to, in effect, say you've already done all the thinking you need to do and that no in further information or reflection is required. Fried was so taken aback by the speaker's request that he adopted the give it five minutes as a kind of personal watchword. So, yeah, he, he 
gave it five minutes and he realized what the person was actually saying. And I think so often we don't do that. Mm. We, just, we just, the whole classic listening, but not really listening. We're more just waiting to say what we were mm. going to say, regardless of what the other person said. Listening without understanding. Yeah, exactly. Um, which goes to the, somewhere else in the book, He the, there's the, Debating society. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, that that was actually an interesting section that you can only debate a point adequately if you can actually summarize mm. what the other person said to their agreement. You yes. know, um yeah, I know that I found yeah, quite insightful. Um because I think like we say now, we quick to respond but not to actually understand what you know has been taught to us so mm. to only be able to go to, to start a debate only after each party can summarize what the other person is or the other person point of view to their satisfaction shows like you really understand what you're debating against because mm. like I said people just debate for the sake of debating I think Somewhere in the conclusion, it talks about mm. that people just debate for the sake of it, you know. Mm. But yeah, having that ability to, you know, summarize someone's point actually shows that you really understand the other person's viewpoint, meaning that th- your points against, in, if any, you know, are, are kind of valid because mm. they're based on. A solid foundation against what the other person's standpoint is. Um, yeah, yeah. Because often our tendency is to um, the terms that are often used are straw manning someone's argument, mm. so making it super easy. You, you're not really um, reflecting their argument truthfully. You kind of just putting up a straw man, which is easy to take mm. down. Um, whereas what we should be doing is doing the steel manning of the argument. Mm. Um, which is more along the lines of what you were mentioning, where you accurately summarizing to the other's satisfaction mm-hmm. as best as possible, if possible, even better than they are able to do it, mm-hmm. so that you really understand what it is and you're not tackling some um, straw man. You, mm-hmm. You're actually tackling the real issue mm-hmm. and discussing the real issue. Because otherwise, it's just debate for debate's yeah. sake, like you were saying. Cool. Okay, so then um, I think we can head over to the next section, which is beginning to think. Um, yeah, because I mean, so the introduction touches on a few different things as well, um, which thinking about the words that you use and stuff, but mm. I think those are touched on in, in later chapters. Yeah. And it also, the introduction introduces the repugnant cultural other. Mm. But I think we've already discussed that a little bit. Okay, beginning to think. So, why wouldn't it be a good idea to think for yourself? Why, oh, sorry, (laughs) let me retry that. (laughs) Why it wouldn't be a good idea to think for yourself, even if you could. Um, Yes, I like this this chapter because... um, we often think that we should be thinking for ourselves, mm. but in reality, we need to think together. Mm. We can't just think in isolation. Mm. Um, yeah, 
me see. So there's page 37, which is, um, there's the discussion of um, uh, Megan Phelps Roper and they, he introduces this earlier on in the book um, where she is, um, she has certain beliefs that are sort of extreme and then she meets um, a person online who helps her think differently and she begins to, rather than seeing them as the repugnant cultural other, she begins to see them as uh, what Alan calls neighbor. Mm. Um, so more like a human being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then because of that, she starts to think differently. And she didn't start thinking for herself, which is what I, what a lot of people would say, but rather she started to think with people. Mm. And not just random people, but people that were empathetic, that held a different viewpoint, but were able to um, have a human discussion. Yeah. I think um, the best line was that we might have different views on this topic, but on a human level, we are actually similar. Because I think what the other guy uh, she met online sort of challenged was you might be different to this group of people and I'll put that in air quotes. Um, but it doesn't mean that, like you're saying, like this other group is not empathetic. They're just as empathetic as you are. They mm. not doesn't mean that just because they belong to this different group doesn't mean they're not honest. You know, so only when she came to that realization did she then... I don't... I think it didn't explain, like, she She still felt strongly linked to her beliefs, mm. but realized that that's not the only way, if mm. I may, you know, um, to say that just because someone's different on one viewpoint doesn't mean as a whole they're different, you know, mm. there's certain aspects to them that still that they still hold that you hold people in high esteem, for mm. instance, you know. So yeah, I think it was a very interesting idea and I think it just confirmed, you know, something that I always think. <laughs> I know we're talking about a book of thinking, but <laughs> um again that when you think in isolation you As humans, we haven't experienced everything in life, you know, mm. but we can learn from other people's experiences. And in how to do that is by having a community. And mm. in those communities, people randomly say things that are different to you, but can give you insight to something you've never experienced. Mm. You know, um, I mean, for instance, you... We don't travel to, we haven't traveled to parts of the world, but maybe we've met people that have been to different parts of the world that have given us some sort of insight to how people in those countries or areas mm. sort of behave. Think and do things. You yeah. know, but that's not possible if you isolate yourself, you know, yeah. think in isolation. You won't be able to, to not to have input from other contexts. Mm. You know, you might be doing one thing wrong 
for all your life until you meet someone who suggests, have you ever tried this? Mm. You know, they might be different to you, but doesn't mean that they're not able to assist mm. you know, in what you're struggling with. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I think that also ties back to the, there's another part in this beginning to think chapter where it, it talks about um, the idea of taking relational goods into account because um, what, I, I can't remember exactly, about, but I think it was something like, let's say um, you, uh, um, someone does something strange. I think the, the idea is that they use the basketball underhand throwing. And so basketball, under, throwing a basketball underhand seems ridiculous. Um, but what happened is this basketball player he was doing really well and he scored incredibly high scores throwing underhand. But when he... But then all of a sudden, for some reason, he stopped throwing underhand and he wasn't doing as well. He was still one of the top mm. players in the world, seemingly, but he wasn't doing as well. And that doesn't seem rational. Like, there's no logical explanation, right, for why you would stop throwing underhand if you're doing better. But what Alan gets at is that he says, if we are, I guess, thinking in isolation and not thinking with others and trying to empathize with others and take their viewpoints into account, we can not um, do well in the art of thinking. We end up being cold and rational, which isn't actually how the world works. And so what we conclude in, in that kind of situation is there's no logical reason why he wouldn't continue throwing underhand because he got better scores there. But if we take a step back and we try and take the other's perspective and we try and think with others, then we'll see things like the fact that relational goods, or you could maybe put it in a different way, um, the taking into account the social aspect of things is important. And as it turns out for this basketball player, it might very well be that he, um, in terms of the way that he's viewed socially... Yes, um, you're forgetting the important <laughs> part of that conversation, of that section. I see you're trying to be very PC about it, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> What, what the way that he is doing things and living his life is a different discussion. But um, to him, it seems like the social side of things is was is also important, and so he stopped throwing underhand because it seemed like a, a I think as weird it, sissy thing to yeah, do was, almost. Uh, as um, put it, as, not to cut it like, but it was viewed less of a man by throwing the underhand and exactly his yeah. goal was to sort of meet women yeah. so it was like <laughs> the compromise was for him to adjust the way he should so it doesn't mean he's still not a great player he mm. could have been greater but he chose to also excel in his social circle his yes career. yeah yeah and that is the the it's what alan is assuming from the situation so it's not like he this um, basketball player said that directly but it seems like a, a logical conclusion for why he would have stopped throwing um, throwing underhand. But yeah, so if we if we think in isolation and we don't um, think with other people, we can fall into those traps mm. more easily. I think is is one of the main points. Um, 
Then a little bit later on page 43, it gets to, to talking about um, uh, James Mill and um, I think John Stuart Mill. Oh, yeah. Let me see. Anyway, they're not really too important, but um, the the important aspect of it is about um, thinking that thinking involves others, but also others. It involves thinking with others, but it also involves feelings, and so um, Mull gives two defenses of the feelings and the imagination. Um, side of thinking and he says that the first is bringing the analytical power to bear on a problem is not enough rather one must have a certain kind of character as um, a person who has both the ability and the inclination um, to to I guess to do things and affect things in a in a positive way and then the second thing he says is when your feelings are properly cultivated, when that part of your life is strong and healthy, your responses to the world will be adequate to what the world is really like. Um, so I think what he's trying to get at there is just that it goes back to what Alan called the orientation of the will. So if our will is orientated correctly we will be able to think and act more appropriately to how the world really is. And if we are able to empathize with people and take other people's viewpoints into account, not just be purely cold and rational, we actually end up thinking better rather than thinking worse. Um, yeah, which is quite interesting. I think just to pedal back a bit, there's just... There are actually two Mills in the situation. James Mill is the father mm. who brought up his son to, uh, just to add context to what you're saying, mm. uh, brought up his son, who's I think just referenced as younger Mill, uh, to only think critically um, and nothing else. Um, so only later on, you know, while alone, did he discover what you, you were saying. Now. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good old John. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I think that's largely what that chapter is about. Um, both thinking with others and also taking feelings into account. Mm. Um, yeah, is beginning to think. <laughs> cool. Shall we head over to attractions? Yeah. Okay. So attractions. This is this. Um, sort of subtitle is how good people can be led to do bad things. Um, I think I'll jump straight to um, maybe let me read this part and then I'll jump to that. Yeah. So on page 54, it says, yeah, in the previous chapter, I wrote that we always think with others and Lebrasco's story illustrates that point so it's a story that was mentioned it also suggests that our ability to think well will be determined to some considerable degree by who those others are so in the um 
Megan Phelps Roper scenario, she was um she ended up interacting with someone who was able to shift her beliefs to be, I suppose, in, in a word, more human. Um, but it's because of who that other was that that shift took place. So, I mean, it's the whole classic thing of um, if you are interacting continuously with um, people who are drunkards and mm. things like that, then there's a reasonable chance. It's not definite, but it's more likely that you're going to end up being a drunkard. Mm. If you are interacting with people who are of some uh, religious orientation, you most likely will end up in that orientation. Mm. Uh, and he goes on later in the book or somewhere in the book to say, we all do good things for bad reasons and bad things for good reasons. Mm. Um, and so if we want to try and do good things for good reasons and avoid bad things because um, for good reasons as mm. well, then we not only need to think about it ourselves, but we need to think with others. Yeah. And those others, the people that we choose to think with, it's important who they are. Um, yeah, I think you forgot that last line that sort of um, sum up what you said, what you read. It says, we might call the moral form of our community. Like, so the people we, you know, the section you, we, you, you read before that mm. about how the people hang on sort of determines how we think. Uh, mm. Like so, we call those people a moral community, and it adds mm. what you say now that if, for instance, you hang out with people that think vandalizing, you know, is a way to deliver some sort of um, message, yeah. message, and they strongly believe that's how it's supposed to be done. Without instead of doing it, you know, what we may consider as the normal way of doing it. Just because you're in that circle, you believe and, you know, you think that's a good way to deliver a message. Mm. Especially if, if you do that, it induces some sort of reaction and action is actually taken. Then people forever hold that, oh, that's what, um, mm. you know, allows people to react to what we're doing, then we'll carry on doing this. Mm. Well, it seems bad. Again, like you're doing bad for good. And it can <laughs> yeah. be, it can go the other way as well, you know, mm. where, you know, you're a good person, but you're driven to do stuff because that's what, in that sort of society, kind of gets a reaction, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's very important who we spend time with, and yeah. and it's not <coughs> it's not that we should choose the people who align perfectly with our thoughts. It's actually we need to just choose people who we think are genuine to interact with, mm. um, and they can have different thoughts to us. But we, yeah, um, there's a really great point which I think both of us like, which Lewis makes. Um, so Alan quotes Lewis um, and it's on page 56. Sorry, that's C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it says, yeah, and I'll, I'll just try and read the whole thing because <clears throat> I think it's a, yeah, a very helpful way 
about thinking about the different attraction attractions that we have mm. to different people groups and things like that and how it affects our ability to think because remember this it's the subtitle is how good people can be led to do bad mm. things okay so with that in mind says yeah lewis doesn't think that any of his audience <clears throat> oh this is i think a um a speech to to a, a group of i can't remember graduates or something like that so um Lewis doesn't think that any of his audience will be surprised to hear of this phenomenon, but he thinks that some may be surprised when he goes on to make the claim, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the idea, is the desire to be inside the local ring, what Alan calls the inner ring, or what I think Lewis also later calls the inner ring, um, and the terror of being left outside. And it's important for young people to know of the force of the desire because all of the passions, because of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a bad man, do very bad things. The draw of the inner circle has such a profound corrupting power because it never announces itself as evil. Indeed, it never announces itself at all. To nine out of ten of you, so this is Lewis carrying on, to nine out of ten of you, the choice which could lead to scoundrelism will come. And when it does come, in no dr very dramatic colors, over drinking a cup of coffee, disguised as triviality and sandwiched between two jokes, the hint will come. And when it does come, you will be drawn in. And if you are drawn in, not by desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment, when the cup was so near to your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It is by these subtle means that people who are not yet very bad can be drawn to do very bad things, by which actions they become, in the end, very bad people. This, I think, is how our moral matrices, as Hadid, so it's another guy that he references earlier, calls them, are formed. We respond to the irresistible draw of belonging to the group of people whom we happen to encounter and happen to find immensely attractive. We may be acting under the influence of strong genetic predispositions, but how those dispositions are activated seems largely to be a matter of what particular people one happens to bump into and when. The element of sheer contingency here is or ought to be terrifying. Had we encountered a group of equally attractive and interesting people who held very different views, then we too would hold very different views. So, yeah, I think um, what Lewis comments on about you just having a cup of coffee and you get drawn into this conversation and then next thing you know, you doing something which you would have never done, but mm. it just sort of happens step by step because you there's this draw to continue being part mm. of this inner ring. And that's very dangerous. And it has immense corrupting power. 
and there's a distinction between the inner ring idea and the, the what they call membership. Mm. Um, yeah. I think um, just to add on, there's actually this concept which I always never remember exactly what the order is, but it's called the three Bs, which is belonging, belief, and behave. So, and uh, that's something that's evident here, that mm. of the inner ring, where by having a cup of coffee and having a set of conversation and stuff, you get a sense of belonging, you know? And from that sense of belonging, you start to behave like the group, you mm. you know? Um you you belong to so you you behave like they do and the more you do that the more you start believing what mm. um, they're that's doing you know so in essence that's what the inner ring sort of is because as it starts you're an outsider but you want to be part of the inner ring the inner mm. ring because you're like oh those people are always laughing in the coffee room or not you then that can be the first part that draws you mm. then you know next thing you you're part of them, you mm. know, and again, like like you're saying, like it's not out, it's not because that person wanted to do bad, but it's because they felt like an outcast, then they wanted to sort of identify to be part of, if you may, like the cool kids, you mm. know, then they start doing what the cool kids do and without knowing they're doing things that they never thought would have done. Yeah. Not because they intentionally wanted to, but just because they wanted just to have that sense of belonging. Mm. You know? And so they actually become mm. those people. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Mm. What did you say? So it's, I never yeah. remember how, which order it is, but it's be, belonging, behave and believe. Mm. So it's like a trigger of when you, with these people, you behave like them, then you mm. belong, and then you start believing. Yeah. You know? Sure. Um, yeah. Three Bs. Yeah, that's interesting. Um. So later on, so we spoke a little bit about the membership idea, and this is when um, Alan and uh, reflecting on Lewis's thoughts discusses this. Um, so it's, I think, page 60. So Lewis, I was just gonna, before you go, even mm -hmm. with that membership, so it says the belonging we need mm. membership, and I see on page fifty nine there's something where it talks about the true believer. Mm. <laughs> you know, so it's part yeah. of that concept. You know, we just need to find somewhere that it talks about behavior. Then you have all the three Bs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah. So it says here, Lewis thinks that the modern Western world tends to give us a choice between solitude and inclusion in a collective. As, for instance, a part of an audience at a concert or a crowd at a football game. What tends to get lost in our world is membership, which is neither solitary nor anonymous. Lewis explains how true membership in a body differs from inclusion in a collective. So remember, collective is the massive crowd of what they would call homogeneous people. So that's people that are this of the same type. 
as opposed to to heterogeneous. Um, so just when they use those words, you'll hopefully be a bit more. It'll be a bit more clear. So how true membership in the body differs from inclusion in a collective may be seen in the structure of a family. The grandfather, the parents, the grown-up son, the child, the dog, and the cat are true members in the organic sense, precisely because they are not members or units of a homogeneous class, so the same across. They are not interchangeable. Each person is almost a species in himself. If you subtract any other member... You have not simply reduced the family in number. You have inflicted an injury on its structure. So where, from what I understand, what he's trying to get at is you can picture the inner ring as this um, collective, this homogeneous group, this group of the same thing in which any one part can be swapped out for another part. So, you have one person, the one person leaves, a new person comes, the group is pretty much the same. Um, whereas in true membership, the actual members matter, not because they have the same beliefs. They can have very different beliefs and thoughts and ways of acting and dealing in the world, but because they are individuals that have some... Um, relation to one another and that relation isn't purely based off of we believe the same thing or we think in the same way but rather it's some other form of of genuine connectedness um when you have that then the individuals begin to matter um and that's the kind of thing that we actually should be wanting we shouldn't want to go for the inner ring mm. because the inner ring it will trick us into doing things and believing things that we don't actually believe mm. whereas true membership will help us to grow as human beings mm. yeah i think that's it for that chapter yeah questions go on to the night uh, yeah repulsions okay so attractions that's what we discussed now we looking at repulsions so that's the next chapter repulsions and then the sub subtitle is why you're probably not as tolerant of others as you think um i'll jump over to page 73 and then um on page 73 so i'm not going to dig into it too much but Basically, they make the point that the idea or the desire to punish the outgroup is stronger than the than the um, desire to support the in-group. So, I think that the essence of it is when when we see others as these these people that are not in our inner ring, these people, these things that are the repugnant cultural other, then we often think if we just like, oh, okay, you know, I'm a fairly reasonable person or something like that. We often think, okay, I'm not, I'm not very intolerant of those people. Mm. Like they have bad ideas and stuff like that. But when we are caught in an in-group 
and there's an outgroup that has opposing ideas and, and that. What is an interesting phenomenon is that we tend to more viciously react towards someone's opposing ideas than we actually care about thinking through our own ideas in that in-group. So we will rather than carefully discussing and figuring out our ideas in this in-group, we will viciously attack others that have even minor differences between the ways that we think, um, which is just interesting because it's, yeah, it's if you're in an in-group, you would th- think that you're there because you actually want to be mm. there. But life isn't that simple. Mm. And it's often more socially wired than we <laughs> than we want to, to but, believe. But it makes sense. You know, I think <laughs> I'm just trying to think now, like even if you look at it on the point of, um, and I think they, they mention it here, uh, some in the book of uh, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Mm. You know, how you can kind of say that inner groups are formed because you have a dislike of a similar thing. Yes. You you know, um, which is, you know, what the repulsion is. Like Mm. you, you agree on not agreeing with a certain group. Yeah. uh, And there's no, what gives you, a sense of being part of the inner group is your dislike for one other group, you know, mm. which is essentially what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think, um, I think it touches on another point here, which is, um, he says on page 76, it's highly likely that the number of non-monsters holding monstrous views is greater than one. So, and people that are not terrible people that hold terrible views, uh, or at least a terrible view. Mm. Um, And he says that over the years, I've had to acknowledge that some of the people whose views on education, so he, I think he um, thinks about and deals with education Mm. quite a bit. I can't remember if he's like a professor or something like that. I know that he's also a literary critic, Mm. but yeah, I can't remember if he's also I think he talks about students somewhere. So I think... Mm. So he says, over the years, I've had to acknowledge that some of the people whose views on education appall me are more devoted to students than I am to mine. And I think it's if we can realize things like that, where you can realize that someone who has very different ideas to you can actually genuinely be devoted and committed to those ideas in a way that's good. Um. If we can realize that, that'll help us think more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also just the idea of di- diversity of ideas mm-hmm. being a healthy thing. Even if you disagree with someone, it can be healthy to have that ide- diversity of ideas because if we are stuck in our own thoughts and we don't ever try and deal with others and think through people who we respect but have different views to us, if we don't do that and we isolate ourselves to to think in one way or the other, then we end up 
deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are thinking truthfully because we can be stuck in our own bubble. And as with the strangers, it is, I think it's a good example. As with that example about the relational goods, where throwing basketball underhand doesn't make sense unless you actually understand what's happening. And you can't understand that easily unless you deal with others and deal with their ideas and try and um, talk through that in in um, healthy communities. Yeah. Okay, then um, a last point of this chapter that I have is the is feeling and thinking. Let me quickly page over to the... Oh, just before you go there, the, mm-hmm. the funny... I don't know if that's... There's that illustration of the... A sea lion. I don't know, on page 18. Uh, yeah? Yeah, that, I feel like that was a good way of summing it up. You know, that... Just because someone... It talks about how the seal overhears someone sends out, and which is very common where we overhear someone without the context mm-hmm. and sort of kind of form our own conclusion, you know. And, yeah... Um, See, see, I don't mind most marine mammals, but sea lions, I could do without sea lions. And the one guy said, don't say that out loud. loud." And then the sea lion goes, pardon me, I couldn't help but over here. Then the one guy goes, you know, now you've done it. You know, like, it's like Mm -hmm. someone hears something and like, just because you said it and what someone heard was out of tune and that part you hear is now it becomes like a whole big thing. And mm. then it goes on to say, I'd like to have a civil conversation about your statement. And then the guy, guy replies, um, would you mind showing me evidence of any... Oh, no, I think this is uh, the sea lion. Because mm. would you mind... Um, Show me evidence of any negative thing any sea lion has ever done to you. And I was also like there thinking, like, people can generally say, I hate this thing without having ever mm. interacted with it. And in the form of this sea lion, it's like, okay, you hate me, but give me evidence of something bad I've ever done. And yeah. I, I bet you no one, okay, maybe beside that last incident in Cape Town where a seal was after a kid, but <laughs> it was after it was triggered, you know, like, it, but people just generally have a head for something without a strong mm. basis. And then the guy, instead of engaging with him, because he actually said, I want to have a civil conversation, he actually mm. goes, go away. And then the sea the lion goes, there's no need to raise your voice. I'm right here. And then um, it goes on to say, I'm just curious if you have any um, source to back up your opinion, <laughs> which is also mm. very valid. And then this guy goes back home, but the seal is still right beside you. I did. He goes, you're <laughs> in my house. And then the sea lion goes, you made a statement in public for all to hear. Are you unable to defend the, the statements you make or simply unwilling to have a reasoned discussion? Mm-hmm. Again, it's like we say these things, you know, just for the sake of saying, but the sea lion is actually questioning that. Mm-hmm. And then he goes... Told you, dude. Sea lion. <laughs> it's like, and they saw round and round. And then the sea lion goes, 
I've been polite. And you two have been nothing but rude. I'm trying to eat bre- breakfast, the one man replies. Mm-hmm. And then the silly the, 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 very well, we shall resume in an hour. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that repulsion. You just have, you repulse something without thinking through it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and <clears throat> it goes back to things like the the words and myths and, mm. and things where we just have these perceptions and um i think early in the book actually talks about how in an in group there's certain words that you use and when you use the words then other people like yeah Mm. no that's yeah you can't believe those people and Mm. and things like that um so those when we use those words then we get affirmation, social affirmation. That's like, okay, yeah, we're on the right path. We're on the right path. <laughs> and the danger of that, and again, reflecting on the the whole purpose of this book is how to think. Mm. The danger of that is when we use those terms and when we attack other um, ideas with terms and discard things with terms and metaphors and and um, myths when we do that do we actually understand what we're discarding mm. or are we just saying sea lion get out of my mm-hmm. face i disagree with you you're terrible um and very often i don't think we do we use terms that are appropriate in our in-group and um, and then we carry on with life because mm. we've been socially approved. Mm. Um, but had we said those things in a different context and then been asked to defend our views, we often can't mm. because we don't even know why mm. we think what we think. It's just we be we we were drawn into that mm. in group, that inner ring, mm. and then we got sucked into the ideas and we started believing them and then we started acting like them. I mean, just, I mean, if we were to put this in the industry we're in, um, everyone will have a view on, let's say, for instance, the programming language because their company uses it. Mm. Yeah. And they'll conform to that and you look at all those sort of um, studies or be like, oh, what's the best programming language and when you sit down and think it's not that that again because I feel like that's always a bored thing to say Mm. because are you saying something is the best because everyone's using it or because it actually solves if everyone's using it, it must be. The best. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I know now being the one opposing inner groups, if I may. But yeah, it's 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 one of those where mm. we again, I'm just saying, everyone's like .NET is the way to go, but why? Mm. There are probably other frameworks, yeah, that are better, but because it's become an industry standard doesn't mean it's the best though yeah and i mean it can it can be the best yeah i'm not but but the thing is and and it it's like i mean this situation it probably isn't the best it's it i mean it's good it's just 
there's lots of different things that are useful for different mm. situations like in machine learning Python's mm. very useful mm. because of all the libraries that are mm. built up around it and et cetera, et cetera. And in the uh, sort of business world, C sharp is very useful because of the fact that there's a bunch of tools and useful things. But the thing is, if we can't express that, that's, mm. I agree with you there. If you can't express why that's, you're in a dangerous position <laughs> Because you probably aren't thinking. Mm. And we need to remember as well that, like Alan said in the beginning of the book, we don't want to think. Mm. Like, it's hard to think. Not only is it hard to think, but if we actually start thinking, we might get cast into the outgroup. So mm. not, it's not only hard to think, we, it's socially dangerous to mm. think. I think he touches on that a little bit later. But yeah. Okay, should we move on to the Money of Fools yes, chapter? we need to... Okay, so The Money of Fools, um, the subtitle is The Dangers of Too Much Trust in and Reliance on Words. So this is a section that we've spoken about a little bit. Um, yeah, I, there's a, a part here where I mention that um, we need to be careful of what are called terminant, terministic screens. So terministic not meaning end, but Term, term meaning like words, mm. terms. Yeah, terms. So terministic screens, um, <clears throat> which is essentially saying when we use certain terms, they act as a filter for the way that we perceive the world. Mm. So to put it another way, the language, i.e. the words that we use, shows and hides certain aspects of what we're describing. So if we use one word, it might reveal certain aspects. If we use a different word, it might reveal other aspects. Yeah. And if we, if we aren't aware of the fact that the words that we use shape the way that we think, then we will be worse off for it. Um, so again, how, how do you think? Well use the words that you or be careful when you are using the words that you choose to use and think through them um, understand them well and know why you are choosing to use those mm. words as opposed to other words mm. um, I mean yeah. it, I think the interesting was how for people that use uh, metaphors with a lot of war references mm. but say they're not violent people you know it's like your yeah. language exhibits this sort of thing, but you kind of saying something else, you know. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think in this chapter, what was interesting to me was um, the section of um, talks about people being in, in prison. It's actually in this chapter, okay. um, and it talks about, as you say, in terms the way certain words are said and delivered can you know, elicit certain responses. Mm. And in this section, it talks about how someone was in prison and was 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 new to it and was asking who he was banking with, uh, why is it that people shout out numbers and laugh? And then <laughs> his bankmate was like, no, they're telling jokes. And later on, he so someone would go, let's say, 4-8, and like, there would be an uproar, people laughing, you know? Mm. And on a random day, he shouts out 11 and no one laughed. And he asks, 
how come no one's laughing? And his bankman was like, no, it's in the delivery. You know, <laughs> and, and it's like, yes. Shouting out random numbers and people are laughing. And someone shouts out a number and you tell them it's in the delivery. Like, what's the difference in how you say numbers? But it's exactly as you're saying, in the way we say our terms, you know, and the terms we use. You know, mm. Just because to you it seems random, but to a certain group it's actually not random. It mm. triggers certain responses within them. So it's very important, you know, to think about how we say things and how we say them. Mm. Yeah. yeah i think um uh there's a part on on page 95 that um that alan references george orwell the guy who wrote, wrote what's it 1985 and, and those kind of books he also wrote um an essay on politics and the english language and in reference to that um alan says yeah but keywords have a tendency to become parasitic. They enter the mind and they displace thought. So it's mm. touching on those ideas that we that we spoke about. <clears throat> and Orwell says, yeah, um, a speaker who uses that kind of... So he spoke about a bunch of different things. And then he says, yeah, a speaker who uses that kind of phraseology has gone some distance towards towards turning himself into a machine. The appropriate noises are coming out of his larynx but his brain is not involved as it would be if it were choosing the words for him as it would be if he w were choosing the words for himself. If the speech he is making is one that he is accustomed to make over and over again, he may be almost unconscious of what he is saying as one is when one utters responses in a church. Um, so I think if we, if we look at, the words that we use just it's sort of reiterating that point if we look at the words that we use if we aren't thinking through them we become like a robot mm. we just are saying things because that's the things we used to mm. saying um and so we need to put in conscious effort to be able to try and think well and conscious effort in the words that we choose. Um, yeah. There's the, the, um, I think you touched on it, the war, the metaphor and using words as oh, war. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's the next part, which is where they dig into metaphor and they say yeah, keywords are always dangerous and always threatening to become parasitic on thinking, but they do so. They do some of their most wicked work when they take the form of unacknowledged metaphors, and this is um, going from coming from a book um, called Metaphors We Live By, and they say here um, they use the example of argument as war. So the terms that we use when we are dealing with the argument are so tied to the war metaphor without us realizing mm. it that it actually shapes the way that we we argue. Mm. So we could argue, like normally when we talk about arguing, we could argue, i.e. disagree and try and figure things out and chat through things mm. in a way that's healthy. But what we often end up doing is we rely on 
the unacknowledged metaphors and and words that we haven't thought through and then we basically act in become we start to act in that way yeah so the 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 thing that the the argument is war metaphor they say here if you think about the different terms that we use we say your claims are indefensible which is a war metaphor he attacked every weak point in my argument his criticisms were on target he demolished his argument we've never won an argument if you use that strategy he'll wipe you out he shot down all of my arguments and so that's in the background of our mind and we don't even realize like mm. i mean before i read through this yeah. i didn't realize that war the war metaphor was a, a an unacknowledged metaphor mm. that was being used in argument um and if we don't <laughs> take account of that we yeah our thinking will be <laughs> worse <laughs> off yeah okay then um got another point here i don't know what it is but i'll read it and then we'll find out (laughs) when people cease to be uh when people cease to be people because they are to us merely representatives or mouthpieces of positions that we want to eradicate then we in our zeal to win have sacrificed empathy we have declined the opportunity to understand other people's desires principles and fears and that's a great price to pay for a supposed victory in a debate don't know how it ties in exactly, but it's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I think it goes back a bit to the thing that I was saying about empathy. Like we we have to be able to have empathy for people in, in outer groups. Mm, yeah. Okay, then um, I think we can probably head over to the next chapter. But um, I think to end off that chapter. There's a nice um, summary that he says at the end of it on page 105. He says, so the story so far is in search of social belongings and the blessed shortcuts that we take when we're in the presence of like-minded people. So he's talking about the shortcuts in the way that we speak and the language that we use mm. and the we, we sort of use these terms to... Um, classify and group people and stuff like that so in the search of social belonging and the blessed shortcuts that we take when we're in the presence of like-minded people we come to rely on keywords then on metaphors then on myths and at every stage habits become more deeply ingrained in us habits that inhibit our ability to think yeah okay then um so sorry, there's actually one more thing from this chapter which I I really liked because, um, yeah, it kind of summarizes the way that I help helps one think about thinking. Um, so on page one hundred nine, he says, "Yeah, to make your argument strong, and it's the steel man straw man idea and and all of that. To make your argument strong, you have to make your op- opponent's argument stronger. You need sharp thinking and compelling language." but you also need close attention and deep empathy. I don't mean to be too woo-woo about it, but truly you need love. Um, 
yeah, hmm. if you genuinely care about the other person and treat them as a human being, you will be able to think better hmm. and empathize more with them and understand their point of view, which help will help you understand your point of view more clearly. And hopefully through that, you can come to some... Uh, some and aspect of and truth. I think it's around here where they talk about I think um, people debating when we're saying if you have if you hold different viewpoints you need to first summarize the other point, yes, yeah, point of view to their mm. satisfaction before you can actually go ahead and yeah. it goes either way you know so. mm. yeah we need to to try and treat others as human and let not have the the um words metaphors myths have such a hold on our, mm. on the way that we think through things okay next chapter the age of lumping investigating the categories into which we lump people and ideas so i don't think we have to touch on this too much mm. but the he talks about biology and taxonomy and that's the classification of living things and how we basically group and lump people together and that our current age is an age where we um just terms to identify things essentially. yeah so we used to categorizing things and grouping things and then there's um yeah i think there's a lot of different aspects that we can dig into but something we touched on earlier is that lumping is a useful way of grouping things and it's helpful because there's too much information for us to process everything mm. so we have to kind of make these groupings and classifications and, and all of that but i think one of the key points that this section makes is to say realize that when you are grouping people to um whether it's grouping them into one the um, red versus blue political mm. groups or this or that or um, communist or socialist or all of these different ways of grouping people that's fine um, people often think it's not fine mm. to do that you don't want to call someone that and but in reality like we have to to some degree do mm. that but if you want to think clearly be careful to know that those are groups that are created. They aren't intrinsic, just existing mm. things. They, we as humans created the idea of this thing mm. or that thing or etc., And we are lumping them into, and sure, there might be arguments to say, no, but we didn't create these kinds of mm. groups of things and stuff like that. That's naturally occurring and, Maybe there's some good points to be made there. But in general, when we're discussing social aspects and things like that, often the terms that we use aren't even very stable. They change and fluctuate over time. They're loosely thrown, in other words. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so if we want to think, we need to take that into account and realize so that when we're dealing with a person, we shouldn't be like, Oh, uh, Peter's black and James is white. The end. Mm. Therefore, he's this way and mm. I'm this way. It's because 
in broad scopes that that might be useful because for for example um in the medical field um maybe uh i don't actually know if this is true but i think there's analogous things so maybe um black people need more vitamin d because they don't get as much because mm. of the color of their skin mm. and, and the way that it's absorbed into their bodies whereas white people if you go into the sun then this mm. you get more vitamin d and stuff not that um both groups can't be vitamin d mm. deficient but um so there's useful ways of grouping and categorizing things but then at the same time for me to say um yeah i can't think of something now but something racist towards a group of white Mm. people a group of black people Mm. is or is not helpful um and so to treat to be able to know when it's good to use those classifications Mm. and when it's actually just unhelpful yeah like i mean to one i think fairly clear example is maybe that if you see a black person you say oh you know that person's gonna steal my stuff mm. like i think we're getting to a point in the society where we're saying oh, okay that that is actually not a good way mm. and healthy way of thinking about things and it's using those groups in very very tragic ways mm. but the to take the vitamin d example that might actually be a helpful way yeah and to we have to, in order to th- if we want to be able to think well we need to say where is it that we're using these groups very badly, badly yeah. and where is it that we're using these groups well? well yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that is what thinking should be about. You know, you carefully considering where and when to use what. Mm. You know, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. There's a lot, lot that can be said about the lumping and grouping mm. and, and all of those kind of things. But... Yeah. I think one of the key things is think about it. <laughs> okay, then the next chapter. I don't know if you want to touch on anything else from the lumping. No, I think the only thing, but it's likely what you say. I think it's it's when the one guy was teaching a class and the guy was like uh, the demon child. And then to him, it was like, he never uh, yeah. thought of that idea <laughs> ever, you know, and it was puzzling him when... On his way back, he realized that, it, and again, to him, he classified, okay, maybe it's because they're black that they think that way, and he walked out. Only mm. to realize that that layer still exists in terms of people that are culturally different, because on his way back, yeah. one of the students was like, ah, don't mind Timothy, his name was Timothy, don't mind yeah. Timothy, he's from this part. Like uh, tribe or something. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, oh, it's not just me that, has that lumping mm. problem, you know? But yeah. again, like you said, you need to know when that's useful. I don't. It's. I not. think. Yeah, I think it was something like there was two friends walking yeah. along, and the one friend says, "Oh, don't mind Timothy because he's part of this group." Yeah. And then the other friends. Like, yeah. The, no, it's not because he's part of that group. It's just because that's Timothy. <laughs> that's the way that he is. <laughs> yeah. And then Alan's like, "That's when I realized." that I was grouping Timothy in with this tribe because he was teaching at this, I think it was a... Yeah, it um, was in Nigeria, and then it had, like, it was yeah. a very diverse group. It had, like, mm. Muslims and... Yeah, but, yeah. And so what he did was he grouped Timothy in 
with Nigerians in general or whatever. And, and then he, I think he just did a general or oh, he's black. Yeah. <laughs> he's and he was African, like, okay, yeah. this is... I'm European, like... Yeah, like he believes in demons and I don't but, and it's weird things. And, yeah. um, and then uh, he realized when the other guy said, no, that's just the way Timothy is. Like, oh, that's just the way that Timothy is. <laughs> That doesn't define that whole group, group of people, yeah. And so, yeah, it's very, that's a, a, a good, a good one. Okay, open and shut. Why you can't have an open mind, and why it wouldn't be good if you could. Um. I think this is the section where they talk about having settled convictions and that being a good thing. Um, and so. Um, about some things, about many things, we believe that people should not have open minds but settled convictions because we can't make progress intellectually or socially until some issues are no longer up for grabs. And then they give the examples of the the kidnapping. So you say, they say here, uh, I think it's the primary problem is that, of course, we don't really want to be or want anyone else to permanently and universally be open-minded. For example, no one wants to hear anyone say that while there's certainly social disapproval of kidnapping, we should be open-minded about the subject. <laughs> um, and I think it's a very good point because we, we think that open-mindedness is this like wonderful thing and it is and we've i mean most of our discussion has been about being open-minded and not being closed off to your in-group and things like that but don't confuse that with the fact that there are some things which it's actually good to have settled convictions on kidnapping is not good i don't want people to be kidnapping it's okay to be settled on that conviction um yeah so I think it's just another aspect of thinking. <laughs> Open-minded about kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so I've got here um, that we don't realize the depth of... Uh, so this is, is a, another um, part of, of this open-mindedness and... Uh, uh, figuring out how to think about different things and this is this is the sunken cost idea um so um, there's a, a nice story here about um sunken costs in intellectual in the intellectual world versus sunken costs in the economic world um and so they say here that um the salient point is that poker players and stock investors who don't learn to control their instinctive difference to sunk um, in their instinctive deference to sunk sunken costs go broke. So essentially, when a sunken the the idea of a sunken cost is if you have invested a bunch of money into something or some idea, you've invested a bunch of money into this thing. And it turns out like oh, it's actually not a good thing um, because the investment keeps on going down and going down. 
what happens is investors and people in general often tend to say, I'm, I'm not going to sell because I've already lost so much money. Mm. And if I sell now, then I would have lost all mm. of this money. So let me rather just keep on investing in it and sort of fingers crossed that it goes um, better in the future. Um, and that's the idea of sunken costs. And for investors and, and that, what they're saying is, if you don't realize that sunken costs is a bad thing, mm. you're going to go broke. Yeah. And that's a good incentive for people in that world to to realize the sunken costs and that they are dangerous. Mm. But then by contrast, it says yeah, in the intellectual world, by contrast, the average person whose sunken costs have made them so irrationally stubborn that he has effectively reached intellectual bankruptcy just trundles right along, mostly sustained by habits and social structures that prevent him from paying the full price of his error. So basically, if we have those sunken costs in the in terms of money, we are forced to reckon with that. But when it comes to intellectual sunk costs, we can basically just carry on and life kind of goes on as normal. And I think what Alan's getting at here is to say, if you actually want to learn how to think well, you need to realize that when we're in this sort of comfortable position of like carrying on with life and everyone agrees with what I'm saying and stuff like that, you're probably heading towards that intellectual bankruptcy mm. where you're not really thinking, you're just sort of using the terms and terministic screens that you used to and you blinded to all of those mm. other things um, and so if you really want to think you have to purposefully try and remove those terministic screens and try and um, not let your sunken intellectual mm. costs so if you have spent your whole life believing that the earth is flat mm. um, it doesn't mean that you can't and shouldn't explore other ideas. Mm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I can't remember how that ties back to the open and shut thing. Um, but yeah. Okay. Again, <laughs> another good point, I guess. Um, yeah. And that's where they talk about the, that lady. Uh, Keech. Yeah. yeah. About the end of the world. Yeah. Um, so... There's at the end of that chapter, thirty uh, page one thirty eight. Oh. There's it says here that um, you can know whether your social environment is healthy for thinking by its attitudes to ideas from the out group. If you quote some unapproved figure or have the wrong website open in your browser, and someone turns up their nose and says, "I can't believe you're reading that crap," generally that's not a good sign. Even if what you're reading is Mein Kampf, so that's what um, Hitler wrote. So even if you're reading Mein Kampf, because there are actually re good reasons to read Mein Kampf. So, yeah, we should be looking for memberships, not in-groups, but memberships that are okay with us thinking through the ideas of others and even to say for example i mean let's take a, a um i guess it for some it might be a triggering example mm. 
but it, I think it would be a helpful one. Say you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that you can't quote a Muslim no, yeah. because they said something helpful. It's that you, if if you are in an in group in a Christian um, circle, and you view the Muslims as the out group, and you the the unhealthy thing would be that situation where you say, oh, you know, I can't believe you would ever deal with that or think about that or you quoted that person or, or something. But if you are in a true membership, say you're a Christian or whatever it might be, and you're in a true membership situation where you're part of a family where you can have differing ideas, you generally agree on certain things and stuff like that, like... For example, the kidnapping thing. Mm. You agree on, on just some fundamental things. But when it comes to um, dealing with the out group, mm. if, they are, if that membership is not okay with that, you need to be very careful because that's a dangerous situation to be in. You, if, if it essentially means that that group is not allowing you mm. to think. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, funny enough, you said that um, the more you give the Christian Muslim example, I was just, I was watching a YouTube video yesterday, and um, so there's this YouTuber that holds his Christian beliefs so highly. Um, I don't know if you know him. He used to be. I don't know if you come across Impulsive. Impulsive. Logan Paul's. Uh, no. But yeah, there's, there used to be one of the core members is no longer one was um, okay. is Christian, so okay. it has his like chords certain views, you know, uh, to the point that it caused friction and then mm. it got um, kicked off and stuff. And um, one of the guys in the comments was like, "It's because of you I turned my life to the Lord." What 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 what. And that's the testimony that I tell. There's this um, Middle Eastern YouTuber that changed my life, whatever. And like after that, it was just like comments of like people bashing him. It's like, oh, I'm not one yeah, okay, of those yeah. things. Not the YouTuber, but the guy that put this comment. And then like down there was this one guy. He's like, oh, I'm a strong Muslim, whatnot, but. You have a seat at our tea table. I was like, you see, and again, what you said, it's like, it's the ability to say, even though we have opposing views, but I see something in you that we also believe in that kind of be like, we all have the same mm. sort of love for the Lord, you know, and we can, you know. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just... <laughs> <laughs> The dangerous of the dangerousness of the comment section. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I think uh, starting to wrap up the the um, the second R section is a person thinking what English usage and democratic the and the democratic spirit have in common, and I think I'll just put one quote there because I, he also says that. This is something that can kind of summarize the book. He says, um, this is quoting David Foster Wallace, which he's the guy who wrote Infinite Jest. So he says, David Foster Wallace says, 
A democratic spirit is one that combines rigor and humility, i.e. passionate conviction plus, uh, plus sedulous respect for the convictions of others. As any American knows, this is a difficult spirit to cultivate and maintain, particularly when it comes to issues you feel strongly about. Equally, though, it is a democratic spirit's criterion of 100% intellectual integrity. You have to be willing to look honestly at yourself and your motives for believing what you believe and do it more or less continuously. And Alan says this, you could almost use this as the blurb for the book mm. kind of thing. But he also says, you know, it's not quite as straightforward as that because you can't always think continuously. Mm. So we have to be realistic about that. But I think it is a, a helpful point. Yeah. And then there's the... I don't know if you want to touch on anything from that section. No, we no. can move on to the next. So there's the, the pleasure and dangers of thinking. Uh, and that, he says, in which I explain, no, it's too much, in which I sum up. I don't really understand what <laughs> was said there. But, um, yeah, I think if we if we try and think about what are the good things and the bad things when it comes to thinking, there's that danger of being excluded from your social circle mm. um, because you are trying to be honest with things that you understand and think and and that and if you are rejected from the out from that in group it can be painful mm. despite your realizing that that is a dangerous thing mm. to be in um yeah it can be dangerous it can be scary i mean even i don't know if this is true or not but mm. i would imagine there's an element of truth to it if you think about gangs and leaving gangs gang like I'm sure that a lot of people that are in gangs, they're like, yo, you know, um, it's not good. Uh, but to leave that, it's almost a sense of close to genuine community. And, and there's aspects of gangs that are almost admirable. Yes. Because they, they do the membership thing really well. But the problem is that they also, in other ways, take it too far and you can, yeah. But if you are like, okay, I'm not going to be part of that mm. world, it can be daunting and challenging and it can make life really difficult. But if you want to think carefully, you there will be other people that you can find to think through things with and be open and honest about mm. things. I mean, I think that's what we should, should try and see. Yeah, and I think it even adds that when you're not part of a community anymore or, or your, as he puts it, when your way of thinking changes, right? There's a reason why those people are your friends. Mm. You know, don't forget that aspect. There's a reason why, you know, you hang with them. Your, your, your thinking might have changed, but it doesn't mean it has changed who they are mm. as humans. You know, and I think that's very important that Generally, in the way we think, we need to remember that aspect that there is that human aspect of that other person. Mm. You know, you... Yes, it might, like you say, you might lose friends because of your shift in how you think, but 
don't go to the point of hating them. Yeah. You know, because either one, your mind might change again later down the line, or they might change your mind. They Mm -hmm. might change their mind. You know? Yeah. Um, So I think it's always important to keep that that human aspect Mm. in it. You know, again, it goes back to as logical as we would want to live by, we need to have that emotional aspect. Yeah, the art of thinking. You know, make it an art rather than a science. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, He he wraps up with something that I think is quite helpful. It's not quite the end of the book that he says it, but it's close enough. Um, and it's still part of this, um, the pleasures and dangers of thinking. And he says, you have to be a certain kind of person to make this book work for you. The kind of person who, at least some of the time, cares more about working towards the truth Mm. than one's current social position. Mm. And I think it's not to say that you shouldn't care about your social position and things like that. It's helpful and we social beings, but if you want to dig at the truth, then yeah, you have to realize that there will be people that will disagree Mm. and that's okay. Mm. Um, Yeah. Which is a scary and daunting thing. And I mean, it also goes on, I think, I don't know if it's in the beginning or in this chapter, it talks about, you also need to, know that or don't treat thinking as a means to an end it doesn't mm. have an end point you know it will change forms yeah you, it might slow down a bit but you're continuously thinking yeah you know yeah um, gotta continue thinking mm-hmm. cool um there's a checklist at the end of the book that um he runs through i, I think we can skip over it because we've gone through through pretty much all the points. Mm. Um, but I don't know if you want to wrap up with any um, any closing thoughts, Peter. Um, I think maybe I will pick something from uh, the checklist, mm. you know? Yeah, um, go for it. I think it talks about um, value learning over debating. Mm. Um, don't talk for victory. I think that's... Yes, very good points. Um, and then seek out the best and uh, fairest-minded of people whose views you disagree with. So, <laughs> you know, it sounds like a bad thing, but, you know, seek out people that don't agree with you and mm. just try and have an open-minded conversation with them. Yeah. Um, People that genuinely care about thinking, yeah. even though they have different views to you. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the last one's just like, be brave. I think it's, you You said it, I think, a few times that most of the times we don't want to think, but I think we need to just go ahead and do it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I think. Like I said, um, I'm more perplexed now, maybe I should read it again, but I think it's... <laughs> it's, it's it's been a good read. Uh, at first, I, th- I thought it was one of the more weird books we've read, but I think it helped disgusting it. I think yeah, this yeah. is one of the books that has kind of a lot of, that has had a lot of uh, 
pin drops for me. Is, uh, mm. Oh, that's why that meant, you know, I'm actually yeah. disgusted. So, yeah. No, it's, I, I think having these kind of discussions for, uh, I really, the, the part that I like about these discussions is that one, it forces us to read the book more carefully because yeah. I tend to be lazy when I'm reading and I'm just like trying to get the book done mm. rather than actually thinking through the ideas. Mm. Um, and so I think that's been great. Um, but it's also just helps rethink through parts of the things and try and understand better mm. in discussion. Um, yeah. yeah. What's, what's the, the book about? Mm. Yeah. Um, from my side, the, there's, there's three things which we've talked through all of them, mm. but I think the, the one is that five minute rule. Mm. I think that's a great one to just not automatically go into that refutation mode, but yeah. give it a, give it five minutes mm. And try and actually listen to what the, mm. the other person is saying. Yeah. Then the other one was the words that you use. Mm. Um, those words, metaphors, myths, don't don't let them rule the way that you think. Mm. Um, be careful about about them because you, if you're not careful, they will those basically be terministic screens, mm. screens that cover up what other options and ways of thinking there are. And I guess related to that is be in discussion with groups of people, kind of what you said, be in discussion with groups of people that you disagree with because they will help you to see, to use new terms and to think in different ways. And that's also another nice part about reading and, and things mm. like that. It helps you be exposed to different ideas so that you can, take off your own mm. terministic screen and put others' terministic screens on and see the world from their perspective. Point, yeah. And then lastly, related to that is the that idea of empathy. Mm. And in order to think, well, I think we have to be able to empathize. Um, if we can't empathize with others, we will always shut them off and mm. treat them as the other. Um, yeah. Cool. Cool. Thanks, James. Thanks very much, Peter. We'll chat again. Cool. Thanks.